I tell you guys often that you should never listen to anybody preach that you haven't prayed over. So if you haven't prayed for me yet, here's your opportunity to make restitution and pray for me now. <laughs> so we're going to go to the Lord in prayer before we get started because everything should begin and during and end in prayer. Amen. Amen. Lord, I do not want to stand up here and speak my words. Lord, I don't want to stand up here in my own power, my own strength, or my own wisdom. Lord, I want to stand up here and truly be a vessel for your word to go forth. I want to stand up here and essentially be removed out of the way and that you take control and that you speak to both me and your people. Lord, we need to hear from you. And so, Lord, I thank you for your presence as we've already experienced it in this service up to this point. But God, I am I am blessed and I enjoy it, but I am not satisfied. I am not content to say that was good enough. Lord, I pray that you send another wave. I pray that you send another wave of your glory. I pray that you send another wave of your spirit. Lord Jesus, I want to enjoy and experience you over and over and over again. Lord, the rest of this morning and the rest of the day, and I want whatever happens here to even be a milestone in my life so that we can enjoy it for the days and the months and the years to come. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Exodus chapter 17. We're just going to read the whole chapter. Don't freak out. It's only 16 verses. <laughs> 17, starting in verse 1, it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in the, your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because the people quarreled, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary so that they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amen. So I love I love the word of God. 
I, l- I love the word of God. I think I say that often. Faith and I joke, what's your favorite scripture? I don't know. What day is it? <laughs> I, I love I love the word of God with everything in me. And there's a couple of reasons. Number one is when I read the word of God, it's alive. And I know people say that in kind of a cliche. Oh, it's the word of God. It's alive. No, like it's actually alive. And it, it it's almost like when I read it, I see something differently every time I open that book. And there's a heartbeat in it. And when the heart beats and I see it and it's like it comes off the page. But the other aspect of it is, is that I read a lot of books. I don't, I'm not trying to be prideful in saying that. I just read a lot. That's one of the things I enjoy doing. And if you don't believe me, ask my wife. She will tell you, I read so, too much and it's a fault sometimes. But when I read a book, I always approach it and it's like I'm, I'm holding it up and I'm like weighing it and measuring it. Not like physically measuring how much the book weighs. Oh, this weighs two and a half pounds. No, I'm like measuring the content of the book. Like on a scale of one to ten, how good do I think this book is? Do I think the author succeeded in this? Was their theology good or bad? Did they really exegete that scripture well? Did they get after the spirit behind the text? Or did they fail? Did they just kind of like read something in that wasn't there? And so I judge and I criticize the book. Faith does this too. She has books that she reads, and when she reads a book, she'll say, eh, you know, they could have done better with this, this, and this. But they did really good with these few things. And you guys, I'm sure if you read or you watch movies, you kind of do that. You, you criticize, like, this part could have been better. And I've had conversations with some of you, so I know that you do, even if you won't admit it. I'm not even going to get talking to how you do that with other people. Um, womp womp. <laughs> what is it? You're not preaching now. Now you're starting to meddle. I'm like, nah. <laughs> no. The reason I say that is because when I approach this book, this book right here, when I when I come to this book, it's like the roles get reversed. You know, do you guys feel that way? It's like the roles get reversed. It's like I'm not coming to this book criticizing. I come in and I feel like I'm being weighed and measured. I come in and I feel like I'm being judged and I am and I'm not talking about just in a bad way. There's multiple kinds of judgment, but we're not going to get into that right now. But it's it's like I'm being held up to a standard. Do I make the cut? Not if the book does, not if the Bible does. It's like, am I, I'm the one. It's like, instead of me peering into the Bible, it's like the Bible begins peering into me. And it's, it's life changing because every time I come in there, I'm like, oh my goodness, I am completely a hundred miles away from where I need to be. And it's like, praise God, I'm not where I started, but I am nowhere near where I want to be or where I could be. And so I was reading this passage, and I knew, I don't know why, but God is like Exodus 17, and I went, and I was like, okay, God, there's two sections in Exodus 17, and there's, there's the section about the water from the rock, and then there's the section about the battle with Amalek, and it's like, which one do I preach on? And that was my contention. It's like, which one? And the Lord was like, you're preaching on both of them. I put them together for a reason. And so what God began to show me through this kind of blew my mind and I have been excited to preach it ever since and I told Faith I said I say this often so she laughs at me I said if God shows up this will be the best message I've ever preached I said but if God doesn't show up it'll be the worst message I've ever preached so <laughs> we'll see we'll see but I want to talk to you guys about two different types of ministry I want to talk to you about two different types of ministry I want to talk about the type of ministry that I see and that I've been a part of and I want to talk to you about the type of ministry that this church is going to be if I die, this church is going to be. 
All right, so the verse starts out, and you're probably wondering, I'm preaching out of the ESV, and the reason is is because I read this in the King James, and then I opened up the ESV, and this phrase just floored me. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin in stages. In stages. Now look, the wilderness of sin, I'm just going to be real plain. I'm not going to get into a word study. I'm just going to be real plain. The wilderness is talking about the desert of the desolate place. In the Talmud and in Jewish history and you know Jewish mythology and in Jewish tradition, not just mythology, but in Jewish tradition, they believe that the desolate places in the wilderness and the desert was the home and habitation of demons and devils. And I get where they get that. God said to the serpent, hey, you're going to crawl on the ground, slither on the ground, and you're going to eat dust and dirt. And it's like, well, where's a lot of dust at? In the desolate places, in the wilderness, in the desert. So they believe like this is a habitation of demons. The wilderness of sin, the habitation of demons. And the people don't move on there running out. They just move on in stages. Just move on in stages. Now look, there's a positive spin on this. And so I'll give you the dessert first, the positive spin, and then I'll be mean. And I don't want to intentionally be mean. So take it up with God. I'll just be kind of mean. <laughs> the, the positive side of this is this process of sanctification. Sanctification just means separation or being drawn out. It's the being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so I'm a good holiness Wesleyan Pentecostal. I believe in three stages. I believe in salvation, I believe in sanctification, and then I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But in John chapter 13, because I've been reading a lot of the Gospels about Jesus, getting ready for, for Easter, Resurrection Sunday, I've been reading about the passion of Jesus. And in John chapter 13, one of the most beautiful imageries in all of Scripture, John recounts the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And it's an image of Jesus gets up from his place. It's an image of him getting up from his throne in glory. And he comes down and he grabs the towel. And the language there is he marries the towel, meaning that he takes upon the role of a servant. He, he binds himself to the role of a servant. And then he washes the disciples' feet. And this story blows my mind because I imagine Judas hadn't been dismissed yet. Judas was still there. So Jesus literally is washing Judas's feet, the one that's going to betray him and sell him out for 30 pieces of silver, the one that's going to watch him be tortured and killed and know that it's his fault. Jesus is looking into his eyes, washing his feet, knowing what he's about to do. What, what love of a Savior. I mean, a Savior that is literally going to wash the feet of his betrayer. Man, that's humility right there. Could you do that? Knowing that somebody is going to sell you out and that you're going to die or you're going to go through torture because of what they're about to do and then you're going to kneel down and wash their feet and show them love anyway. That's not even what I'm preaching on, but that, that deserves a comment. That's, that's just another way for us to see just how much our God loves us. But Jesus then moves on and he washes Peter's feet. And I love Peter. I, you guys know this. Peter's an idiot just like me. I love Peter. But Peter says, Lord, no, 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 no. You, you can't wash my feet. You can't, you can't do it. I'm not going to let my God, my Lord, wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if you don't wash, let me wash your feet. You don't have any part with me. And so then Peter, because he's just, he's just awesome, he says, okay, Jesus, get your bucket ready because we're going to take a bath now. <laughs> like, like you have to wash all of me. And Jesus is like, you still don't get it, dummy. <laughs> That's not what Jesus says. He's kinder than that. But he's like, no, no, no. You're clean. 
You don't have any need for me to wash you completely. But your journey has gotten a little filth on you. Look, when, we, when Jesus died for us and we believe in him, we're clean. That's justification. You're pronounced clean. And then you go through this moment, this crisis moment of sanctification, and you're made clean. And then you live your life, and you get a little dirt on you. Come on, the journey of life, you get a little gunk on you. Look, I wore sandals to Dollywood yesterday. I had to wash my feet after I got home. I mean, come on. Life gets a little junk on you. And if you're sitting there and you're not saying, yes, it does, then you need to take your halo off, throw it in the seat next to you, because it doesn't belong on your head anyway. (laughs) I'm serious. Life gets a little junk on you. And that's why the sanctification isn't just an instant moment in time. It's a process. And that you're continually being conformed by the Spirit of God into the image of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is like, yes, you're clean, but you're going to have to have your feet washed because the journey of life is going to get some junk on you. So there is an aspect of this moving on from the wilderness of sin and stages that you could put a positive spin on that. And I feel like because we like tickling people's ears so often that that's the only spin we put on things. We like sugarcoating things. Some of us are going to die of spiritual diabetes. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) There ain't no flavor. ain't no savor. There's only sugar in our diet. Anyway, anyway. But the, the other side of this, and this is what I see it happen in churches all the time, is that we want to move on from the wilderness of sin and stages. We want to move on from the habitation of devils and demons and stages. And what we do is, like, God, I surrender all, but please don't ask me to be a missionary to Portugal. God, I surrender all, but please don't ask me to make restitution with that individual that wronged me. God, I surrender all, but please don't ask me to give more than 10% of my income. Some of us are like, please don't ask me to give 10% of my income. <laughs> Some of us are like, not even talking about going above and beyond tithes and offerings. Like, I just, God, don't even ask me to tithe and offer. Like, there's grace. Anyway, sorry, I'm going to get off of that. But I'm serious. Money is a measurement of where your heart's at. You know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's why I push 10% or I push tithe, not because I care about your money, but because I care about where your heart's at. You want to know where your heart's at, look at your bank account. I'm serious. I'm serious. And there's been a lot of times I'm like, man, my heart is with the food industry. <laughs> Goodness gracious, the amount of money that can be spent eating out. But they want to move on by the will- from the wilderness of sin in stages. We want to say, it's almost like we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to reach for God and hold on to the world. And James picks up on this and he's like, don't you understand that being a friend with the world is being an enemy with God? You hug the world and you're making yourself an adversary of God. You're opposing God because you won't let go of the world. And we're sitting there and we're saying, I surrender all. I give all to you, Jesus, and I keep none of it for myself. And then we go out and Jesus is like, why don't you go talk to them? It's like, oh, my reputation. (laughs) Like, what, what about what they'll think of me? And it's like, Are we really surrendering all? Are we really moving out of the wilderness? Or are we just going to move out in stages? Like, it's almost like we're, um, I've used this term recently, so now it's stuck in my mind, but it's almost like we're like kind of like diversifying our funds. It's like, I don't want to put all my eggs in the Christianity basket because if this doesn't work out for me, I want to make sure I still got some connection back to the world so I can go pick up where I left off. 
And people do that all the time. They, they live their life like that. And that's what John talks about in the book of Revelation, the lukewarm church, the church that's not hot or cold. And he's not talking. I know people have preached this all the time. And they're like, well, the hot is on fire for Jesus and the cold is that they don't love Jesus and that they're evil, evil. And it's like, no, he is not saying be as good as you can possibly be or be evil as you can possibly be. He's talking about the cold is good for drinking water and the hot is good for the hot springs and the medicinal purposes and all that. He's saying either be good or be good. Don't be lukewarm. (laughs) Why would God tell you to be evil? Like That doesn't make any sense at all. Be good or be good. But don't have a mixture of being good and then thinking that you're going to be something else and then it just ruin what you are. Don't let your Christianity be diluted. Don't move on from the habitation of devils and stages. I'm surprised with everything they went through that they weren't like booking it, running full speed with their Nike tennis shoes on as fast as they could out of that wilderness. I would be. Like, get me out of here. I don't want any more fiery serpents. I don't want any more of that nonsense. I don't want any more slavery. I don't want any more of that. God, let's go. Let's go to the promised land. Who cares if there's giants? Have you seen the size of the grapes? <laughs> anyway. Anyway, told you my heart was with the food industry. <laughs> but you know what? Here's the result. I'm just going to be honest. Here's the result. When you live your life like that, and I'm not talking about this church. Understand this. I'm talking about two different types of ministry. So understand, I'm not looking out at the congregation saying they're lukewarm, they're lukewarm. That's not what I'm doing. I'm painting you a picture of one type of ministry, and then I'm going to paint you a picture of the other type of ministry. And I'm going to tell you, I'm giving you a hint, this type of ministry I'm painting right now is not what we are going to be. So I'm just giving you a hint, okay? So don't think that I'm beating you up. I'm just saying, this is bad, no good, okay? The result of this, lukewarm Christianity, the result of this, of having your cake and eating it too, friendship with the world, nonsense, that people try to pass off as nominal, name-only Christianity, the result is that they come out of the wilderness, they go to Rephidim, and then they say, there's no water. And water is scripturally representative of two things, the power of the Holy Ghost and life and vitality. One of the two. Always. Always one of the two the Holy Spirit, or life and vitality. And they come out and they're like, why is my Christianity boring? They did a survey like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and the survey was asking people of my generation why they were leaving church. And people over and over and over gave this answer or something very similar. They said, I left church because it was boring. And I'm like, because it was boring? We serve the God of all creation, the one that has all power and might and dominion in His hands, the one that can part the seas and heal the sick and raise the dead, and we come into church and it's boring? We come into church and it's boring? They say, why don't you pray? I talk to Christians all the time and they don't have a very good prayer life. And if you press that and you press that, what you end up finding is they're having some kind of double standard existing in their life. There's unforgiveness. There's some kind of like spiritual withholding from God. Something that they haven't just given God over to God. Sometimes it's a gross sin. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just an aspect of, I can't relinquish this because I don't trust God fully. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, I don't know how to let God love me. 
So their Christianity is boring. Their prayer life sucks. They pray for people and nothing happens. It's because they're coming out of the wilderness of sin in stages. They haven't just given it all. Look, if you're going to do the Christianity thing, you've got to sell out fully. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, uh, an encouragement to you guys, but some of you guys seem to be sold out fully. I haven't had, known you guys long enough to verify 100%. And there's parts of your life that I'll never know. You know whether or not you're sold out fully. You know whether or not you're holding something back from God. And if you don't, ask, and he will show you. But I'm just going to warn you, be careful before you ask. Make sure that you got your, your big, big boy and big girl shorts on because God can't hurt your feelings because he cares more about your health and spiritual vitality than he does about your feelings. Feelings are temporary, eternity's not. But they, they don't have any water. They don't have any water. Their Christianity has no power, it has no life, it has no vitality. Their prayer life sucks, church is boring. And what do they do? They come running to the pastor. <laughs> and they start f- attacking him. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die? This is your fault, pastor. Why is church boring? This is your fault, pastor. Why do I have no life and vitality? Why does my prayer life suck? And I've had people tell me this, and I'm like, hey, it's not my fault that your prayer life sucks. It's not my fault that you get nothing out of church. Look, Jesus Christ is standing there, and God the Father thunders from heaven, and He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, And you know what? Some people hear the voice of God. Some people heard a sound and thought it was an angel. And some people thought it was thunder. And it was Jesus and God the Father. Do you think that it was God's fault that they heard thunder? Or do you think that it was Jesus' fault that they heard thunder? No. You know whose fault it was that they heard thunder? It was their daggum unbelieving heart. It was their fault for not coming out of this wilderness running with their Nike shoes on, but coming out in stages. They were still holding on to the world. Still hugging the world. Friendship with the world. The spirit of the world. Looking just like the world. Sounding just like the world. Watching the things the world watches. Talking the way the world talks. Looking just like them. And then they're hearing thunder and they're like, oh, church is boring. (laughs) There's no water and so they come at Moses. They just start attacking Moses. Hammering Moses. And you know what Moses says? He says, why are you taking this up with me? Why are you tempting God? This isn't my problem. This is on you, buttercup. (laughs) This is on you, buttercup. And if you haven't noticed, this type of ministry that I'm describing, this portrait that I'm painting is congregation against pastor. Pastor against congregation. There's a separation. You see this? There's Moses and there's the people. There's a separation. And so what's Moses do? And I will say this, disclaimer, every person that has ever been in ministry in any way has done this before. Moses turns away from the people and turns to God. He says, God, what am I supposed to do with these people? (laughs) They're about to drive me nuts. They're about to kill me. (laughs) What am I supposed to do with them? (laughs) Every pastor, every pastor has done that. At some point in time, like, church is just driving me nuts. Especially over the past couple years, so many pastors wanted to quit and throw in the towel. Because it was congregation, pastor. There was a distinction, a separation. This is the type of ministry I'm describing. And so God tells Moses, he says, you know what? He says, 
Go on before the people. Get you some elders. I'm going to help you set up a leadership structure here. Get you some elders. Go on before the people. And I want you to take the rod, and I want you to strike the rock. And then water flows, and the people have some life and vitality. And you, do you see what's happening here? The pastor talks to God, and then God gives him a difficult task. He's going to have to bang on a rock to get some water and some life to flow to the congregation. And you know what this type of ministry does? It has the congregation against the pastor, the pastor against the congregation, and there's a a schism there. And then you have the pastor working his hind end off while the people are quarreling and fighting with him and attacking him and talking about him. Not just talking about him to him, but talking about him to one another. And then he's over here banging on a rock trying to get the congregation to have some life. And God in His mercy has done it occasionally. Has sent some life to the people so that they had some water. And you see these men and women of God rise up and there's revivals and there's some life and vitality. And most of the time, unfortunately, the congregation wasn't doing anything. It was the pastor beating his head against a rock trying to get some water to flow. And you know what's sad about this? This whole picture, what's so sad about this is you have a congregation that's still moving out of the wilderness in stages. Still moving out of the habitation of devils in stages. You have a congregation that's mad at a pastor. A pastor that's fed up with the congregation. You have a pastor that's worn out and tired from beating his head against a rock. And there, sure, there's, there's some life and there's some vitality, but everybody's stressed out. And it never lasts. It's a flash in the pan, firework, bang, and then it's gone and it's done. And then you have the same problem happen again that's one type of ministry and you know where it leaves you the last verse of that section verse a it ends this way it says is the lord among us or not that's where it leaves you when you put everything on pastor when a church puts everything on pastor it'll leave the congregation and the pastor both asking is god here or not It may take years to get there, but that's the ultimate place it'll leave you. Is God here or not? You know, yeah, we've had some great services. Is God here or not? But that's not what I want. That's not what I think we have. So don't read into this and don't give Satan a place. That's not what I think we have here. But that's what I think church has been for a long time. People have a pastor. They want to send him up the mountain to hear from God and then bring him back down and say, now tell us what God said because we don't want to get that close to God ourselves. And I want you, each and every one of you, to go to the throne yourself. And then we can come together and celebrate and talk about it. That's the first type of ministry. That doesn't sound appealing, does it? It doesn't sound appealing. Either say amen or oh me. (laughs) Then you have the second type of ministry. And this is what I want. I'm go ahead and give my hand away. This is what I want. You have Moses, the pastor, and he says, hey, Josh, Amalek comes. So there is opposition. So it's not all hunky-dory daisies. Look, I don't expect ministry to be daisies. Okay? I don't even like daisies. I don't expect ministry to be daisies. I do expect there to be attacks, and I do expect there to be difficult seasons. But here's the difference. The difficult seasons come. The enemy comes. Moses has a disciple. See, Joshua wasn't even mentioned in the previous passage. 
Moses says, Joshua, get some men and go out and, and wage the war. So you already have teamwork. You already have Moses and his disciple and some people supporting Joshua to take him out. So you already have team. You already have teamwork. But then it goes, it gets even better. Because Moses says, and Joshua, I'm going to go up on this hill and I'm going to pray with the staff of God in my hand, Aaron and her with me, and I'm going to pray and I'm going to worship over this battle. Now I'm going to give you guys a cool picture here because this is the foundation for everything. You have a man of God who goes up on a hill with a tree and two people on each side of him. That's a picture of Jesus on the cross. Up on a hill. Oh, and it gets even better. Because not only then, but he ends up sitting down on the stone at Horeb. <laughs> the stone is representative of the law. So you have the man of God on top of the law, putting the law underneath of him, seated in between two individuals. But then it gets even better than that. Aaron is the high priest after the order of Levi. And her is of the tribe of Judah. And Jesus Christ is our high priest. But guess what? He's not after the order of Levi. He was born of the tribe of Judah. And he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So you have the Levitical high priesthood meshing with the tribe of Judah at the man of God on the hill with the tree overseeing the battle. That, that's an awesome picture of Jesus Christ right there. And that is the foundation for the victory. That's the foundation for the victory. I'm going to get to the type of ministry in a second, but we have to stop and say that even in the perfect type of ministry or the ideal aspect of ministry or the ideal philosophical approach to ministry, the foundation still has to be Jesus Christ. I don't care how we set up our system. I don't care how we set up our organization. I don't care how decisions are made. If Jesus Christ isn't the foundation upon which it's built, it's going to fail. What happens if you have a faulty foundation? If they can't fix it, they condemn the house. Jesus Christ has to be the foundation. The house is condemned. But now we're going to get in, into what I believe that God wanted me to, to talk about. I don't know how this is going to look. But Joshua's battling. And when Joshua's battling, you know what? Let's do this. Let's do this. Joshua's, Joshua's battling. And in this battle, Moses is on the top of the hill. Moses raises his hands. Joshua's winning the battle. Moses' hands get tired. He drops them. Israelites are losing the battle. Now look, it can't be this picture of, oh, we're winning, we're losing, we're winning, we're losing. That wouldn't even be enough time to know if you were winning or losing. Like, this had to be, for some time, Moses had his hands up until they felt like they are about ready to fall off, so he had to drop them down, and it takes a while for your hands to recover. So you're talking a good period of time passing in between the hands being up and the hands being down so that they could visibly discern whether or not the battle was being won or lost. So Moses is worshiping. He's worshiping, and there's victory. And he's holding them up and his worship is getting tired. His worship is getting tired. You know what? Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. Hang on. Everybody that has a need, and I mean a real need. 
I'm not talking like you don't know if you're going to have enough money in your bank account to go out to lunch at Cheddar's after service. I'm talking about a real need. I'm not talking about allergies has been giving you a hard time. I'm talking about a real need. I'm talking about something life or death. I'm talking you're three or four months behind on rent and you're facing an eviction notice. I'm talking about life-threatening illness, something that's actually a need. If you have an actual need like that, I want you to raise both hands. You don't have to raise them all the way up. You can raise them just like this. I, if you can't, you can hold them right here. Just want you to raise them up. Raise them up. I want you to hold them hands up until the end of the message. I want you to hold them up as long as you can. I want you to hold them up as long as you can. Hold them up. Huh. I'm, I can be long-winded. Just hold them up. Hold them up. I'm serious. Hold them up. Victory. How long can you hold them up? How long are your hands get, before your hands get tired? What if I told you that your victory is dependent upon it? What if I told it that your spiritual breakthrough, your healing is dependent upon it? Your victory, if your hands drop, you've lost. If your worship ceases, you've lost. Come on. Can you keep them up? If you know that you're facing death and the only way that you see life is if you keep those hands up, can you keep them up? If you're facing eviction or you're facing failure or you're facing bankruptcy and the only way you can get victory is you keep your hands up, can you keep them up? How long can you keep them up? I'm serious. How long can you keep your hands up? If you have a need, how long can you keep them up? Your hands getting tired yet? Is everybody's hands getting tired? All right, now where are my Aaron and hers at? Where are my Aaron and hers at? Come on, find somebody with hands up and help them hold their hands up. I'm serious. Get up and move and find somebody that can't hold their hands up and help them hold them up for them. Help them hold their hands up. Help them hold their hands up. Find somebody that has a need and help them hold their hands up. Come on, help them. Because this is what church is supposed to look like. It isn't supposed to just be one pastor standing up there saying, I'm going to worship and pray for my congregation. It's supposed to be, I'm going to find, whether I'm the pastor or not, whether I'm the door holder, the doorkeeper or not, I'm going to find somebody that has a need and I've got to help them hold their hands up. I'm going to keep them worshiping until they get their victory. I don't care what happens. I don't care what the situation looks like. I don't care what the circumstance holds for them. I'm going to help them. And I'm going to keep those hands up and keep them worshiping and keep them praising God until the battle's done. Until the victory is assured. Until they're driven. It says he fought them until the going down of the sun. Which meant Moses' hands were up all day long. For hours his hands were up. He was keeping his hands up until the victory was final. And you know what? The end of it, what it says? Oh my gosh, the end of this passage, what it says? It says, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. And it says, a hand on the throne. A hand on the throne. You're helping them keep their hands on the throne of God. They're in that, that throne of grace. Their hands are there and they're saying, God, I have a need. And you're not letting them move their hands from that throne. You're saying their hands are going to stay on that throne until that need is met. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter how long it takes. Come on, we are such a microwave society that we worship for five minutes and we think that that's enough. We worship and we pray for five minutes and we ask God three or four times and we think that He's being unrighteous because He hasn't met our need yet. And we're like giving everything, hours of our time, and we give God minutes and we think that He's the one being unfair. Keep your hands up. Worship God. Because your need is there and it's going to be met. And your victory is assured. It's 
already paid for in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but you've got to keep your hands up. You've got to keep your hands up. Can you keep them up? Start thanking God for your victory. Use your mouth, church. Pastor Lewis said God gave you a mouth to praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. Keep your hands up. Your victory is assured. Just keep your hands on the throne. Let today be a memorial. Let it be, because you know what God tells Moses? He says, write this down as a memorial so that then you can go tell people. Joshua didn't see Moses' hands. He didn't see Aaron and her were having to help him. He was too busy fighting. He was too busy fighting. But you know what? God said, write it down and tell him. Let today become a memorial for you, church. Let today be a memorial. Today is the day that my need was met. And it was because they didn't let me stop worshiping. My church family didn't let me give up. My church family didn't let me take my hands off the throne. My church family wasn't uh, one leader leading a congregation. No, it was a church moving together as a body towards the image of the invisible God, knowing that we are in this together. And not one is better than the other. We're all the same. We're all the same. We're all new creatures in Christ Jesus. You have the same Holy Spirit in you that I have in me. You can do the same things God's told me I can do. You can pray and you can worship the same way I can. Keep your hands up, church. Your victory is assured. Your victory is assured.